Hello, welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Hello, Moms Changing the World. Welcome to another season three episode where we get to dive into a conversation with a mom who is changing the world in her own special way. And you know, if you've been around, that I love to share the stories of women who've been in my life over the years who you know, just are, are really following the, the leading into whatever gifts and talents that God has given to them. And today's guest, Dr. Naima Bridges, is no different. I like to start off by sharing a quote or a proverb that can just serve as some inspiration for us in this season. And so this one for today is a Senegalese proverb that goes, haste and hurry can only bear children with many regrets along the way. Again, I'll say that haste and hurry can only bear children with many regrets along the way. And I think as we are in a season where we're getting back to school and we're settling into new routines, I think it's so important to remember to slow things down a little bit and not always be in a hurry, especially with our children, pushing them and driving them because there's so many things that are constantly pulling at our attention and theirs. And so if we can slow down, take a pause, teach them how to stop and smell the roses, be more mindful and present in the moment, they too can benefit from a more mindful, less regret-filled journey as they're growing up such that the Senegalese proverb reminds us today. I love that today in sharing her story, I've gotten to see her blossom from a high school student when I first met her into you know, the, the physician in OB-GYN for Kaiser Permanente that she is today. And yeah, I you know, love thinking about you know, how I first meet some of the guests that come in. And I remember back um, you know, 20 plus years ago, when I first started attending Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, the church that I still belong to today, there was this cute family and they had four daughters and they would sit behind me and they were like a stair step and the girls were like a year or two or, or three apart from each other. And so they would sit all in a row next to or between their parents. And I came to know them as the Bridges family and the Bridges girls. And Naima was the oldest of the girls. And her parents, who are still very active in leadership uh, of the church that we still attend today, you know, ha- uh, raised these girls. And I just remember just thinking, wow, you know, before I was married or had kids, you know, wouldn't it be amazing someday to have children who got along and seemed to love and care for each other as much as, you know, the, the girls seem to, to get along and follow each other in school and, and whatnot. And so from that time, I was actually working at Kaiser as a health educator myself. During those years, when she graduated and started college, she followed in the Stanford tradition in her family. And I you know, came to realize that she chose the same major that I did there, human biology. And so we shared that and her sister came along as well. And so it was just really great to see them grow in their education, but also in music. I think they were a part of the gospel choir. I saw them perform a few times. And so it was great to just be able to cheer them on. And then when I was at UCSF doing my advanced practice nursing degree, there too was Naima starting her medicine career at the School of Medicine. And so we overlapped there for a few years before she continued to do her master's of public health at Harvard University with a global health emphasis, which I definitely want to hear more about as we talk today. And then her residencies and training in OB-GYN wrapped up through the University of Illinois, Chicago, and then back to California at UC Davis in Sacramento. And so since then, she's been 
busy working and in leadership at the Kaiser Permanente in Santa Rosa as the assistant chief for the department of OB-GYN and also as a physician recruitment ambassador. And so I couldn't be more proud and excited to welcome uh, Naima to the show today. How are you? Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. And thank you for that lovely introduction. That was great. You couldn't have set it up any better. I couldn't have done it any better either. So thank you so much. Oh, a lot of nostalgia awesome. with those comments too. I didn't realize we were actually following each other so closely in terms that's of our right. careers and everything. So that's, that's awesome. Right. It really <laughs> is. I mean, it's fun when God allows our paths, you know, to, to stay connected over the years in that way. And you also now get the prize as I think the newly minted mom, the newest minted mom on the show, because we often will have mothers who you know raise their children already or who are in the middle of, of raising it. But you are a new, the newest member of the club, which I'm so excited to, to hear all about with having had your baby just three short months ago. And so mm-hmm. I know that your perspective as a new mom is something that I've definitely wanted to be able to share with our audience. And your perspective as a woman who's ushered many other women, you know, into their motherhood journey, yep. you know, in your work as well. So I'm sure you've got some very interesting perspectives because your idea of motherhood, I'm sure, has been forming, right, all, all along these times as you come alongside Absolutely. various women. So, yeah, why don't we start off with you just sharing yeah, a little bit about yourself and your family and how you've been navigating these pandemic days. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm from the Bay Area, born and raised in in the South Bay, essentially. And I've got three younger sisters, all of whom have their own paths to life. And we, you're absolutely correct. We get along pretty well. We haven't had any large strifes growing up and we still get along as adults very well. In fact, my two youngest sisters uh, just got engaged this year. So they'll be married next year. So we're really excited about a couple of weddings coming up. Oh, and my that's sister awesome. just under me, thank you. <laughs> and my sister just under me, Rashida, she's got three kiddos yeah. and she's been busy with her own kind of interior design business and taking care of the kids. And so all of us, we're kind of doing our own thing, but we're, we're doing pretty well. Yeah. That's incredible. As well, for I, me, oh, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I still get to see your parents because mm-hmm. we're still at the church together. So that's the way that I kind of get to stay connected with, you yep. know, what's happening with all of you. And Facebook, of course, helps too. Yep. Always, <laughs> to help. Always. I happen to be on Instagram a little bit more than Facebook these days, but certainly yeah. social media helps a lot. Right, um, right. A little bit more about me. I've always had this interest or drive to go into medicine since I was a little kid. Um, in fact, I remember trying to operate on my sisters when I was about <laughs> seven or eight years old. Uh, the Learning Channel used to have these surgery shows, and it used to say, viewers discretion advised. And this was back in the 90s. And so I used to watch people cut open individual bodies and look on the inside and take out the organs. And I was very interested in this at a young age. And I would watch it over dinner. So I eat and my parents were so grossed out. They're like, you've got to turn the channel. <laughs> we can't watch this. But that was my fascination. And props to my parents. They realized that at an early age, specifically my dad. My father ended up getting me a doll that had all the organs in it, but a pregnant version of the doll when I was maybe five or six, that I can take out the baby and put the baby back in and rearrange how the organs would change when a woman is pregnant. Wow. Revolutionary. I would have never thought I was going to go into OBGYN, but that was very interesting to me to see what was on the inside of the human body. Yeah. Um, Fast forward, or maybe about the same time, first and second grade book reports, right? You've got kids. You've yeah. got a book report. Yeah. yeah. I chose to do book reports on organs of the body. I did not choose, <laughs> you know, regular fiction books. I went to the encyclopedia and said the kidney, and I'm going to do a book report on the kidney or the heart or the pancreas or the liver. And I did book reports on all of these different organs in first and second grade, not following directions, but it was my passion. So yeah. slowly, I think God had put my interest in medicine, physiology, and the human body very early. I knew it was a God-given gift because I don't know who, what kid would do a book report on an organ (laughs) willingly could have done it on Bernstein bears or something else. Right. 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 (laughs) Um, So that I know that's something that God has given to me at an early age. So then as we fast forward on through Stanford, I knew I was interested in health and trying to look at more population health, which is why I Mm -hmm. looked at human biology as a major Mm -hmm. with a focus in African and African-American health. Cause I knew growing up in the Bay area, I didn't have as much exposure to health issues specifically related to African-American people, just because our density isn't as high as compared yeah. to other places in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that was an interest of mine. And that also sparked an interest in global health at the same time, which I would later pursue in, you know, for my master's in public health at Harvard while I was in medical school. So all of it started to kind of tie together 
Side interests absolutely include music. I was in an acapella group at Stanford, as well as the gospel choir that I directed. Oh, um, incredible. Thanks. And I still do it. Not as often as I, I, I wish I could, but I still mm-hmm. love to sing. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Yep. And, you know, children's choir is one of the ways that I continue to, to do the... Yep. The yeah. music leadership. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. And so then as far as, you know, kind of growing your family, tell us a little bit about how that came into the picture in the sure. recent years. This actually relates a lot to what you mentioned with the last question in terms of how we're navigating the pandemic. So my husband and I met in 2012 when I was doing my intern year in Chicago, in fact, and most of our relationship, we've been long distance. So he's lived in Chicago or the East Coast. I've lived in California. We got married in 2018, May, and he again was living on the East Coast, getting his MBA at Georgetown, and then moved to Delaware to work for JP Morgan. That's where his job is currently situated. Well, lo and behold, the pandemic comes along and they're you know quarantined, and so he's able to work from home. I, as an OBGYN, I'm still going into the office, clearly, because babies come when they come. People need hysterectomies right. when they need hysterectomies. That's so right. Stop. But his actually became a lot more mobile and he was able to come out here. And we really talked about having a child. My, um, my age isn't getting any younger. (laughs) (laughs) And so as I'm rounding the later thirties, closer to 40, I'm thinking, wow, I need to have a child sooner than later. And so we really talked about it during the pandemic and thank God it didn't take too long. I didn't deal with infertility issues that I was able to conceive and we have our little girl, Camille, now April of this year, April 16th, 2021. Aww. So God kind of navigated the pandemic in a way that he was able to bring Stephen closer to me to work from home yeah. in order to have a child. Otherwise, we yeah. would not have had, had her. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the pandemic raised so many different you know, things. I mean, of course, it's been heart-wrenching and, and gut-wrenching as far as the challenges that it's brought on to so many families, not just health, but financially and, you know, school, you know, education, all of those things. But there's also been some opportunities that that different families have been able to to find to create and grow in this time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you there. Yeah. And we, we hear those stories over and over again about how people have been able to transition to the job that they want or transition mm-hmm. to the family lifestyle they want or ask and be able to have the boldness to ask their employers for a change mm-hmm. in a schedule during the pandemic yeah, and, and, they, and are able to get those things. That's right. So it's almost a silver lining that we all are looking at too. That's right. That's right. Good. And I, you know, I like starting off practical as far as, you know, feeding, you know, yourself and feeding families. And so since you were mainly on your own, you know, I'm curious how, you know, that's evolved, you know, now that your family is all in one place and, and you can tell us, you know, whether or not you're breastfeeding and how that, if that's changed your diet and feeding, you know, of yourself. Sure. Well, starting off with feeding myself, I'm kind of born and raised pescatarian. So my whole family is pescatarian. Um, My father became pescatarian probably in the 1970s, met my mother. They both formerly ate meat and uh, totally changed their diets. Um, For health reasons? uh, More for, yeah, more for social consciousness reasons Mm -hmm. and health reasons. I think that's Mm -hmm. how they changed in the Mm seventies. And so as the kids were born in the family, we also followed the same diet, more or less Mm -hmm. vegetarian. However, Mm -hmm. my third sister was allergic to a lot of dairy and soy. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we added more fish to our diet in the nineties. And that's how we essentially became pescatarian. Mm -hmm. So this is the complete opposite of my husband. (laughs) (laughs) burgers, you know, like house beef, all of these things that he absolutely loves that, um, you know, I don't know how to make, I've never had meat before, never turkey on Thanksgiving, never chicken, Mm. you know, never. And so this has been something to navigate now living together, um, trying to rectify our diets together. Uh, Needless to say, I'm still pescatarian. He basically eats what I eat when he goes out, he eats whatever he wants to eat. And that's kind of how we've made it in our household for the most part. Um, From feeding Camille, my three month old, I am breastfeeding, but I had a a lot of difficulty with that. And Mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out why that was so hard. In fact, a lot of the OBGYNs in my office who had babies more recently too said they gave up after six weeks. It was just too hard. 
Some of it might be our schedules, but other, I had a postpartum hemorrhage after delivery. And I know that mm. certainly affects breast milk supply. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any colostrum or any milk uh, for the first five days. Okay. Uh, so my poor kiddo was just starving and screaming mm-hmm. all the time because she didn't really have anything to eat. So mm-hmm. we had to give her a little bit of supplemental formula until my milk came in. And mm-hmm. even though I'm not an oversupplier, I kind of just give her exactly what she needs and Thank God I haven't had issues with mastitis or engorgement because of it. But at the same time, I feel like she's still hungry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really incredible because, you know, you don't hit. I remember for myself, you know, thinking, you know, breastfeeding, like, you know, is, you know, I remember going to the mommy and me prep class, right? Where they talk about all these things and kind of positions and holds. And I'm just like, how hard can it be? Right. Right. Exactly. Like, we have it. advanced degrees. We can figure this out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course, you know, the reality sets in when it's this, you know, human life that's figuring things out and our bodies are doing what they're doing and they're doing what they're, you know, what they're trying to figure it all out as well. And yeah, mine yeah. was the colicky crying baby and it's not supposed to be dairy. You know, it's such a small percentage of what it's supposed to be. And for her, it was. So that's I had true. to change my diet you know, really from going to the mom's groups and the lactation circles and hearing that it made a difference for some of the moms in the group, I decided to give up one of the things that I, you know, really loved at the time. Mm-hmm. And it did make a difference. Yeah, and really, it wow. really did. Yeah. And yeah, to this day, she still, you know, has, has lactose issues, right? So it's really interesting how, you know, it, how those things evolve, how you often cannot predict, you know, what is going to happen no matter how much you know and how the training has been. And so that kind of leads into the, the next question in terms of motherhood and what you expected it to be. I'm curious, you know, what did you, you know, think going into it, you know, in all of your training as an ob and seeing all these moms, you know, transition into motherhood, you know, what were your expectations and what was the reality? You know what? I don't know that I had great expectations for what motherhood would be because I'd seen so many varied families and stories and situations of motherhood. And so I knew I had to be open for anything. What I didn't realize that, and what we spoke about before, was that it would be so hard. Um, My sister had three children Mm -hmm. and and she makes it look so simple. Her kids are so smart. They've skipped grades. She teaches them a ton in the summer so they can skip grades. And I was like, how do you have the energy to even do this? I am barely making it. And I'm used to not getting sleep and being on call and, you know, being up at odd hours of the night, but having consecutive weeks of not it. Is a whole different story. Yeah. Um, and so I think though I didn't have great expectations, I did at least expect that the sleeping wouldn't be as horrible. At the very beginning, as I mentioned, because she wasn't getting, she was undernourished, in fact, lost a lot of weight. She dropped to five pounds when she was born uh, and she couldn't latch. So we had to go through speech physical therapy. And I kept thinking, man, this is one thing after another that we are having to go through to kind of rectify, to make it look so easy. And I have plenty of moms who are in their teens or their twenties who have babies or breastfeeding who look happy. But again, the fallacy and what we don't always realize is that you see people, how they appear, but you don't actually ask them how they're actually doing. And when you get to nitty gritty, almost everyone's feeling the same at the very beginning of how they're raising their kids and how they're adjusting, particularly for first time moms. Um, So at this point in time, the reality is she's changing and growing every day. She started to laugh this week. So we're super excited about that. She's finally up to 10 pounds, 13 ounces. We've been really working on her weight at three months. She's, she was born under all the growth curves. So she's super tiny. And I can talk to you about my pregnancy later. This is, it was a very tough pregnancy that was, she was growth restricted Um, and all of these different issues. But at the, at the end of the day, her name means perfect, Camille. Her middle name uh, means joyous, Blythe, and she's perfectly joyous. Uh, so those are the things that I hold in my heart as we go through all of the challenging transitions of sleep and feeding and getting on schedules, um, because she'll get there. We'll all get there. Yeah, Everyone does. Exactly. Um, and I'm trying to have a positive outlook in that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you said, I think we don't necessarily want to admit or talk about how hard it can be to become a mother or to, you know, kind of navigate those early days, you know, the hormones are raging, the, the body and the sleep, you know, is impacting everything. 
as a sleep deprived brain, you know, it can easily go into, into the crazies, you know, so quickly and easily. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the layer of depression that some, fam- um, you know, moms go through as well. And yeah. so I'm glad that we can, I think now in our culture and society, it's much more acceptable, right. To, to, to talk honestly and openly about the challenges. And as you mentioned, keep joy at the center yeah. of it, that we do figure it out together, right. We Absolutely. grow together with our children. And, you know, I was really grateful because I had friends who had babies just two, three months before me. And so this is kind of how I've always lived my life. And I can sidebar to that in a minute. But by having people who are just a couple of stages before you, not 50 years before you or 30 years before you, or even 20, but just two months, I was able to ask, okay, what did you do in this month? How did you handle this? When did this happen for you? People who had just immediately been through it was very helpful. And how I've lived my life and my career is when I look for mentors, and I am a mentor to many people, but I also have mentors. I only look for people one to two years above me in terms of career paths, because mm-hmm. they remember exactly where they were a couple of years ago and can lead me to where they currently are. Um, yeah. And eventually I'll get to having more of a gap and looking at people much further in their yeah. career. But for me, it's been very helpful to have those little step stones. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great tip as far as when you're looking for people who are interested and passionate and doing the kinds of things that you want to do to see if you can find someone who is close in season to you, mm-hmm. right? A few months, a few years ahead. I think that's a great tip for moms, especially since we're navigating so many different things, right? In addition to career, we're dealing in feel like you're figuring out feeding, right? And and nutrition. And we're figuring out, you know, learning our babies and all of that. And I do remember feeling that that real desire to be in those mother circles, right? To join the the groups and to be with other moms who are going through the same thing almost around the same time. Right. Because there is a, a wisdom and a support that's unique to that, that circle. And COVID has changed that a lot. Right. person support group. So I came in like, what am I going to do? No mommy yes. and me, no support, no like yes. slave dates, nothing. So how did you navigate that? <laughs> well, you know, it, it was a lot of text messages and phone calls to those individuals yeah. who I personally knew who had kids that right. were actually in my department this right. year in the past 2020 and 2021 has definitely been a boom in terms of childbearing in the Bay area um, with our labor and delivery wards being completely filled because of COVID because people have been closer to their loved ones and they've been able to have more children. Um, And and therefore even people in my department, we have a high rate of maternity leave right now because people have been able to have kids. And that has caused me to have a lot more resources too. That's Um, that's been absolutely helpful, but I, I feel a little bit sad too that I don't get to have some of that in-person interaction sure. with the kids and bringing them to the groups and having those lactation groups and all that. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. I had to sure. kind of figure out a lot on my own or do one-on-one lactation right. support or things like that. Right, right. Well, I will encourage you in that, you know, a lot of the groups have as pivoted as many things have had to, you know, to the online and I've heard some really good things about, for example, Blossom Birth in the Bay Area is one of the places. It's Palo Alto, Menlo Park based, but they did a lot of the classes in person that I attended back in the days and they've continued to do that. But now they've done a lot with online options, right? And so the one beautiful thing, right, about going online is that more people can access it from more places as well, right? You're not necessarily restricted to what is in your neighborhood or within, you know, X number of miles, but you actually can find and be a part of you know, even very specific groups. I know that there's, you know, African-American mom support groups um, that you can find online now and so on. So I will and still encourage reaching out in those ways. Mommy and me yogas, a lot of these things can happen. I know it's not the same as being in that same room, right, with the other moms, but it is a close second, right, to being able to meet new moms who are in a similar position as you through the, the online world. Okay. That's a good yeah. advice. I should look yeah. a little more into that. Yeah. Yeah. Because another thing that's special about it is when you're meeting new moms in the season, especially if they're close, you know, you have some proximity to them, then the kids can kind of grow up together. Um, and yeah. so that's what's happened, you know, in my life and circle is a lot of those baby moms, I call them, that I met around the times that are, you know, weeks to days apart from my own kids. We were able to go grow, see them grow up together. They did dance classes together. Some of them went to school together. And, you know, our lives are kind of forever, you know, interlaced because of it. So I definitely encourage you in that in that regard. And, you know, really Kaiser, I have to say, you know, as a, you know, kind of a former health educator, I think that's one of the areas where they shine is in the 
group education, the coaching, the you know, health maintenance and prevention. And so I didn't work in the maternity side of, of the group classes. So I don't know specifically what they had for that, but for the like diabetes and the weight management and the smoking cessation, all the lifestyle support, I feel like that's one of the, the shining stars, you know, within the, the Kaiser, you know, services and opportunities. I agree. And I definitely took advantage of all their pregnancy related courses. Yeah. So I, I yes. think they do a really good job with that. Great. Good. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, pregnancy and what that was like for you. And then, you know, from your perspective, what advice you have, you know, for moms who are in that season of, of whether it's, you know, easy pregnancy or infertility into the labor and delivery side of things, um, Mm -hmm. into those, those first few weeks, the fourth, right. Trimester as it's called. Feel free to ask me any specifics as I go along. So I sure. they're good <laughs> I can go on for an hour about I'm sure. <laughs> but essentially we became pregnant summer last year. And I didn't know I was pregnant because I was bleeding every month. And I ended mm. up having a kind of a hemorrhage behind my placenta. And that's mm. why I was bleeding, not because I was having my period, but that was what was going on. Mm. So we didn't actually know. Fast forward to our anatomy ultrasound, I also found out at the same time that I had a pretty short cervix. And so that was an indicator of a preterm delivery. And lo and behold, as I'm working, I'm contracting every 10 minutes or something as I'm working. And so throughout my months, that was January. So that probably is around five to six months. Okay. I started contracting a lot and um, about 24 to 26 weeks, I was about dilated to one and a half centimeters and very thin cervix, 80%. Um, and so at that point in time, we thought we might have a preterm delivery. We weren't too sure, you know, mm-hmm. how things were going to go, whether or not I would have to be transferred to higher level of care in terms of baby side of things, not from a, a you know, obstetrical side of things, mm-hmm. but just it's, it's scary. So although I know everything and supposedly mm-hmm. know what I should know in my field, it's scary when it's you, number one, but also number two, you also know everything. So you know yes. what can go wrong and you yes. know possibilities for everything. So I had every single scenario in my head of all these possibilities. And my husband's like, you just need to stop all this. Like, this right. is too much. <laughs> right. you it. It's but a mixed it, bag when you, it, when you know too much. Because <laughs> I, I knew what all of the outcomes could possibly be. And some mm-hmm. of them were very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it ended up being one faithful night, uh, early February, I was probably six months at that point in time. And I was called in the middle of the night to get up from my sleep to help a colleague do a C-section. And after that, the next day just didn't stop contracting. And that's when they found out my cervix was getting even more dilated. So Mm -hmm. I ended up being off of work actually between February and April. And again, silver lining COVID, we had a telemedicine Mm -hmm. program. And mm-hmm. so I did all the telemedicine for our mm-hmm. office from home. Okay. I couldn't walk all over a place and see patients anymore. Yeah. anymore. I had a cane. I had physical therapy. I couldn't put any weight on my right leg. I was in such bad pain. So I literally oh. couldn't walk in addition to the contractions, wow. um, two separate issues. And so from that and from COVID, I was able to still see patients virtually or uh, through speak to them on the phone and still take mm-hmm. care of patients that way, which was actually mm-hmm. still nice. It gave me something to do. Sure. Um, as pregnancy progressed, we also found out that, the, that Camilla's growth restricted, uh, which meant that she wasn't getting enough nutrition through the placenta for whatever reason. And the blood pressures going through the placenta were getting a little higher. All of that's to say that basically I would have needed an early delivery. But thank God, as we continued with our high risk ultrasounds, the blood flow improved, still mm-hmm. small, but blood flow improved. So mm-hmm. I ended up having an induction date, but I went into labor the day before my induction. So okay. everything ended up working <laughs> out how it should have. The actual labor and delivery experience was probably the best part of my overall pregnancy journey, both yeah. pregnancy and postpartum. The labor and delivery was the easiest part. (laughs) I thought it was going to be the hardest. I was most apprehensive about labor and delivery, despite the fact that I've delivered hundreds of babies, done hundreds and hundreds of C-sections. I myself was apprehensive being an African-American woman, delivering a baby, knowing the complications and knowing some of my health history that I could have a potential to have blood clots. So that's something that I was really looking at too and pulmonary embolisms, but the delivery went smoothly. 
I basically was an active labor for about an hour. I, I pushed and she was delivered and we, we went really well. And I was happy to see her after that. Yeah. That's incredible. So, I was, yeah. remember, you know, seeing those pictures when you first posted and like, Oh my goodness, the baby's here. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. And you know, it, it does yeah bring back, bring back the memories. You know, I, we had chosen and wanted to do as low intervention of a birth as possible. And so we took the blossom birth classes, right? So that we really had a plan and we really had some strategies because I think if, you know, one of the important things about, I think having natural, like no medication kind of births is that you have to have plans to manage the pain um, and you have to have a way of communicating those plans with the team around because there are protocols and there are kind of agendas, right, that are going to come from the, the hospital side. And so thankfully, you know, I had worked really hard on like uh, kind of learning about really mindfulness and mindfulness based mm-hmm. ways of managing the pain. And we wrote out, you know, and kind of decorated our, our birth plans just to really be able to easily share, you know, with, you know, our team, what we were wanting, what the goal was. And of course we were open and knew that we had to be sensitive to what the babies actually needed and they had to cooperate, right. Mm-hmm. With, with that as well. And thank you know, thank God both did so that I, we didn't need, you know, the, the medication assistance or anything like that to, to get through the birth. But it was so interesting. I, fa- I thought just how different people reacted to that approach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a nurse myself, right, I, I had some understanding of like what the, the systems, right, in place would be. And, you know, for the first delivery, you know, I, I felt like the, the nursing staff, I think, was more on board than my initial OB-GYN, uh, who I definitely felt, you know, the pressure, you know, we d- the water wasn't break, didn't break for us, you know, in either, either birth of my two daughters. And so that meant that the contractions were going and I was dilating and all of those things, but it was slower um, of a delivery. And so the, the, when we were transferred from our, you know, clinic last checkup visit to the hospital, you know, I did feel the pressure from the physician, you know, the OB-GYN who initially was there to, you know, figure out ways to make things progress faster mm-hmm. um, than, than we were necessarily comfortable with. And so, you know, we had to really advocate for that. And thankfully there was a shift change. And mm-hmm. so uh, the second doctor who came on board was much more, I felt supportive of that plan. And And similarly, in the second delivery for my second daughter, she, I was expecting things to move a lot faster since our our first one actually was pretty quick. Once they broke the bag, everything just chugged along for her and she pretty much shot out, (laughs) you know, within like a few pushes, but it did take a little bit longer for the the second one. And so, yeah, it's so interesting how each birth is different. And I think Mm -hmm. the second time around, they assigned me to a nurse who had formerly worked in a birthing center. And so she was very much, yeah, uh, very much on board and the doctors as well. I I felt the support there, but there were, you know, a few like travel nurses, it turned out Mm -hmm. from other places in the country who weren't as kind of ready, I think, or weren't as open to this more, you know, California, right, progressive, you know, uh, approach. So I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. And I think I did the exact opposite of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The only thing I planned before I got to labor and delivery was my music playlist. Again, music. That's me. That's That's the only thing I planned. I do is an OBGYN. Things are unpredictable and they can change. And to hang my hat on something that I really wanted and for it to change, I would have been even more disappointed. And I unfortunately have to disappoint patients all the time with what they wish to happen to what actually ends up happening for the health of the mom and the baby. So I wasn't making any plans. I wasn't writing anything down. I was just going to say whatever happens, happens. (laughs) Give me the drugs, give me the medication. I want this baby out as quick as possible. (laughs) I don't have time to be in labor. That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) So I I remember coming into the hospital. And in Mm -hmm. fact, I had a midwife deliver me, my friend. She specifically said she was going to come in purposely to deliver me. I'd asked her ahead of time so I wouldn't have to take resources from the rest of the labor and delivery board. And she kept asking me within the weeks before, uh, my scheduled induction, though I didn't have to be induced. So what's your birth plan? I said, I don't have one. Are you sure you don't have a birth plan? What do you want? <laughs> I don't have one. Just get the baby out yeah, safely. That's yes. all I want. I yes. want a safe baby. If I have to do a C-section, I already know the doctor who's going to do my C-section. I already right. called and I said, Hey, I'm coming in this day. <laughs> right. You know, let right. me know. Right. Um, 
And so we are opposite in that way, but that also speaks to the diversity and how women want their birth experiences to be. I wanted pain medication. I wanted it to be quick and easy. And I didn't want to be at the hospital forever because for me, I also see how long inductions can affect the baby and the woman higher rates of postpartum hemorrhage. Sometimes you see some more C-sections. Sometimes you see babies that don't actually end up looking as good as we like the babies to when they're born. So I wanted things to go as quick as possible. So when I arrived, I was contracting about every five minutes or so. And I was three and a half centimeters, 80%. That's how thin the cervix is. And then the head was at zero station. That's how low the head is. Mm-hmm. And you can go from minus five or so to plus five when the baby's out. So I was right mm-hmm. in the middle, which is a great place to be. Yeah. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, well, I've been contracting every five minutes over the past couple of days, but these are now stronger. I know something's yeah. different. Give me the Pitocin. <laughs> um, so I actually requested, since I came yeah. the day before my induction, I requested the Pitocin and they only had to put it on a couple of levels up to two and it can go up to 30. I only had up to two million yeah. and eventually got an epidural. My bag of water broke. And then we had yeah. our kiddo that next morning, Pitocin yeah. started at 11. I had the baby by 7 a.m., 11 p.m. Yeah. And so for me, that was, I guess, my birth plan. I want to yeah. get in and out as quick as possible for postpartum. I, I wasn't going to stay there for two days. Give me a day and I'm going to leave. Um, <laughs> and that's just, I just know what happens in hospitals in terms of complications. If you need yeah. to be there, stay there. Right. But if you don't need to be there and you're healthy, yeah. I was going to go home. Yeah. Um, and I, I appreciated the support that I had of the mm-hmm. staff while I was there mm-hmm. too, because mm-hmm. no one pushed any agendas on me yeah. by any means, Good. Um, Good. which was awesome. But I was able to dictate what I wanted for the most part. One of the OBs that was there was, didn't let me have one of the medications I really wanted. Uh, <laughs> we just don't know about the safety with a small growth restricted baby. baby. And that's yeah. One of the medications that I wanted. I said, okay, sure. Right, um, right. But overall, everything worked out how I had wanted it to work out, which was safely and mm, smoothly quickly. and quickly. Those yes. were my goals: safe, smooth, yes. and quick. And however yes. to get there, that's what I <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the other benefit was that my husband got to deliver the baby oh. with the midwife, and so he stood. He was able to pull Camille out, and oh. my friend um, Lauren, who was the midwife, stood right there with him and guiding him along the way. And so I think oh. that was such a special experience. Yes. And I don't know that I would have been able to have had I not one worked at that same institution, two right. known all the nurses and the doctors and the midwives, yeah. and three, had a husband who was willing to participate and not going to pass out his butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. and so it was I, such I a do. great time experience. Yeah. yeah. I do think that, like you said, diversity and really, you know, there shouldn't be any guilt or shame or pressure around, you know, what a mom wants for her delivery. Right. And mm-hmm. so I am, you know, I always want to emphasize that, Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in talking about any of the, the topics that it really has to come from you as the mom and, you know, in your, with your partner as well, what your goal is and mm-hmm. how you want to get there and, yep. you know, prepare as much or as little as you know, <laughs> makes you feel comfortable, right. Yeah. In the ways that make you feel as ready as can be right for the baby in a flat. And with the openness, I think that is a really important point. The openness to really go and, and trust that, you know, the baby will let you know what they need. The the doctors will weigh in on that as well with their expertise. And the goal is absolutely that safe, that safe delivery in the end. So got it. Yeah. The memories that I really take away from that is not being in labor too long, number one. But the second is the songs that she was delivered to, and you probably know them. One was The Blessing by Elevation Church. Um, That was just as she was about, she was crowning, that song was on. And the second Mm -hmm. song was Gyra by Elevation Church and also a Maverick Music. And the nurses were crying, the midwives crying, you know, Stephen's (laughs) being emotional. You know, I'm I'm like, focus guys, let's go. (laughs) 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 Never was all emotional. (laughs) That's my you know, these great songs, these great moments of music, you're delivering this baby and people are crying and I'm like, let's keep going with a great outcome. And so that's exactly what I could have wanted it for, for my delivery to have those highlights from what I remember. Other people remember different things, but I know what I remember are those highlights. Oh, that's beautiful. Incredible. And if you don't know those songs, I highly re- recommend, you know, pulling those out as soon as you're done listening to this interview because they are, they are 
blessings for sure. For sure. Good. Well, you know, as we now shift, I, um, I'd love to talk some about, you know, some of the global health perspectives, you know, that, that you have. And I, I, you know, see from your, you know, your bio that you've done some international work and I'm curious and would love to hear because we hear are really about, you know, moms changing the world in a, in a global sense, right? Both the world that's right close to us, you know, because our world can be small and every day when our children pull us and ground us, you know, in the moments and in our home. But the world is getting smaller every day as well. The big world, right? The global village is in some ways, I think, getting smaller as well. And what we do impacts what happens on the other side of the world and what happens on the other side impacts us. And so I'm curious from, you know, your training and your, you know, perspective from that global, you know, health picture, there's so much going on in the world right now. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what your, what your thoughts are given the MPH background and what your hopes are, I think, and, and how to, you know, help our world heal in yeah. all of this. I think that's such a great question because there's so many issues, I think, from a global perspective that we take for granted living in the United States that we don't often think about um, access to clean water, access to medical supplies, access to food that all deal with your health, essentially, because if you don't have some of those things, you can't possibly live a, a really, really healthy life in the long run. And so just the supply chain to be able to provide, as we've seen right now, COVID-19 vaccination to places that may not have been countries of origin for the development of these vaccines or who cannot afford them. What is our role as a developed country and developed nations, as they would call it, to provide some of these medical tools to other places who may not be able to afford them or don't have the infrastructure to be able to have them? And these are major questions and debates that can be going on for quite some time, whatever people's beliefs are. My fundamental belief is that everyone needs uh, who has the opportunity to help should be able to help those in need. And that's, that's both from, a, I think, a, a Christian perspective, but also from a, just how I feel from a public health perspective, the world is a better place when everyone's brought up to a similar level of, of health or uh, a, similar, a similar playing field, I feel. And studying from at least my MPH, globalization, indeed, as you hinted to, is quite real. The world has gotten so much smaller from social media to the ability to be in another country within a couple of hours by hopping on a plane. But at the same time with globalization, as we've seen with COVID-19, our spread of diseases and infection also is quite global. The things Mm -hmm. that we can obtain and contract in different places can quickly go there to another place in five to six hours and spread. Um, and so the way that we then approach healthcare has to become more of a globally based healthcare system and not just very individualized or country specific, simply because we are a global world and uh, we affect each other much closely than we all know. To even another example currently is the Tokyo Games and how our, uh, um, our Olympians, who are doing such a great job for the United States right now, I'm so excited to watch some of these games and these athletes with their bodies and what they can do. But at the same time, you see how something as large as the Olympics were postponed for a year because of the effects of a global pandemic that's affected every country on the planet. Um, My passions really deal in global women's health and Mm -hmm. having access to decreasing postpartum hemorrhage, having access to appropriate surgical services, and then also being able to be supported, just as you mentioned, in some of their everyday decisions within motherhood. And so... Some of the work I did in Tanzania, which is in East Africa, was in Arusha. And I was working specifically with female genital cutting and trying to figure out more from an anthropological perspective, why it persisted, who persisted it, and what the outcomes were of the people who were practicing some of these beliefs. And some of what I learned is that it's actually matrilineally passed, meaning it's the grandmothers who say to their granddaughters, this is something that I had done. You have to have this done too for purity, for chastity, for cleanliness, you know, whatever the reasons are. But the other thing is the women who perform these female circumcisions or the cutting, or there's, there's multiple things that you can call it. They are getting monetary money from the community to do so. It's their mm. livelihood. It's their work. Mm. It's what they do. Mm. And so if you create another avenue by which they can make money, there are bead projects that were going on in Arusha, people mm-hmm. selling the Maasai beads and such um, mm-hmm. to create more financial incentives so that these women didn't have to perform these procedures and they were still paid. 
you always have to get to the root of some of the issues and not just say, ha ha, this is not something that's good. Just cut it out. You have to mm-hmm. learn about culturally why things are going on and create alternatives for that and teach not only about the health implications, but also the monetary implications for mm-hmm. such things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was an eye opening experience back in 2006 mm-hmm. when I lived there and was working uh, specifically w- within the communities in Arusha, Tanzania. Um, mm-hmm. In residency, I had the opportunity to work then in West Africa and Cameroon. I speak French. Mm, And so it was great great. to be in a French speaking country to actually be able to use my French. I studied abroad in college and French was my minor and working and learning more about the women's health wards in Yaoundé, Cameroon, and also in Bemenda, Cameroon, French speaking, English speaking, two separate Mm, parts of the country. mm -hmm. Um, And in the French speaking area, the labor and delivery units were very kind of organized, but also there was not much room for flexibility. As you talked about your birthing mm-hmm. experience and how you had decided to have a birth plan and what you wanted to do, it's very patrilineal. It's this, you come in, this is what you must do. This is how you must have your baby. And you're going to walk from this side of the room to this side of the room when you finally have your baby. And this is how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not much room for much patient decision-making processes mm-hmm. in that area. When I moved to the North, which was more of the English speaking area, there's a lot more patient preference. Uh, At that time, it was family medicine physicians that were doing all the deliveries. They didn't have any obstetrician or gynecologist. Mm. In fact, the family medicine doctors were also learning to do the C-sections. So they were so excited when I was there because I was teaching them different surgical methods and techniques during a C-section too, that they hadn't, you know, been privy of. Um, And I, I really got a love for actually teaching while I was there. I didn't think that I would be a teacher or that I would love teaching, but I was able to teach the family medicine attendings who were at this one hospital a little bit more about GYN issues, menorrhagia, vaginitis, you know, different issues with growth of infants in utero during the actual antenatal period of time too. So all of these things that I got to present on, which was really an awesome opportunity while I was there made me also squeak the wheel a little bit for maybe I might go into teaching a little bit. We'll, we'll see kind of yeah. <laughs> what yeah. happens a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, and that's the beauty of kind of how things are for women these days in, in any, in many fields, right. That we can shape and guide and pursue, right. Multiple things and, and it can kind of, our career can grow based on our interests and talents. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. fabulous. And then you also did some relief work as well. I did. I so, Yeah, the Haitian earthquake that occurred in the mid 2000s was so devastating to Port-au-Prince and a lot of other surrounding cities in Haiti. And so I went with Jordan International Relief Group, which actually through ALCF Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, I had learned through one of the physicians, Dr. Enoch Choi, that he volunteers with this group. And so I had raised some funds through some members at the church and some other people that were family friends to actually go and be kind of the women's health liaison for women and girls on this trip. Interestingly enough, and something people don't think about in disaster situations is when disasters strike, normal healthcare issues do not cease. And so a lot of people ask me, well, what's the point of having a women's health specialist go on, you know, a trip like this? Well, what's the point not having a women's health specialist go on a trip like this? I may not be able to provide the immediate surgical relief or the immediate internal medicine background relief. Mm -hmm. Plenty of women came up to me saying they still had vaginitis. They still had abnormal bleeding. They were pregnant. They still needed care that, you know, was going by the wayside because of all the relief efforts that were going to very immediate pressing things. But if you think about it, if you're not getting care in pregnancy, over a certain period of time, that can become dire. And so yeah. all of these different issues that tend to be pushed kind of to the to side when there's a disaster still need to be t- tended to and taken care of. So that was more or less my role on the team. And it was the first time being on a disaster team going from place to place or tent city to tent city to provide mm-hmm. care in limited uh, resources. But it made me feel really fulfilled to know that number one, I could somewhat speak the language because they also yes. speak French there too, yes. more Haitian Creole, but some French. And then to be able to connect with people who look like me, who needed care um, after mm-hmm. their livelihood was uprooted from this major earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yes, that that's so powerful to be able to see care from someone who looks like you and can relate to you. I know I chose my OB guide this the second time around, you know, to have a, an African-American woman for that very reason, that there's something unique about being able to be able to work with someone, you know, who you can connect with in that way and relate Absolutely. to. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think all, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no you go. 
Oh, I was going to say, and I think all these experiences speak to also my love for travel. Part of the reason why I also did my global health degree is because ever since I would say I graduated from college, I've tried to go to one to two different countries a year type of thing, just to see different places. And my love for travel paired with my love for healthcare and also kind of reproductive rights and justice in healthcare too had steered me through this global health path. I'm not doing as much right now. I wish I could do more working in my role currently. There isn't as much time, but perhaps as I start to transition careers in a little bit, we'll see, I might be able to do a little bit more from a global health perspective and bring back some of my passion. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think there's also the layer, and I think with you know all that went on as far as George Floyd goes, in terms of just race and ethnicity right here at home, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we've been challenged and pushed and stretched in some incredible ways when it comes to the conversations around kind of our diversity and health right here in America that impact, right, our, our ability to relate and connect around the world. And so, you know, I'm curious for those who can't see you, you know, just share about your family's ethnic makeup mm-hmm. and, you know, how that, how you're thinking about, you know, your daughter now is too young to really talk about issues of race and, and empathy, but how are you thinking and preparing for that aspect of, of motherhood? Sure. So I'm African-American, again, born and raised in the Bay Area. My parents are originally from New York and I often get, well, where are you from really? And that's <laughs> that I actually don't like. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The reason that I, people are always trying to get to your origins of where you're really from, it's sometimes very tough for some people. My family, mm-hmm. case in point, my family came over as slaves, maybe in the 1700s or 1800s. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what we know. And so talk about original Americans. We've been right. here for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't trace my lineage uh, too, too far. But from what I do know, um, my, my family has gone from New York to North Carolina, some of Alabama, and that's where some of the relatives have been. But that's mm-hmm. kind of what I know from this history. Um, right. And with that comes a deep rooted pride for being an American and an African American, but also knowing stories from my father and visiting places where his father grew up and some of the struggles that they had growing up um, and some of the struggles, particularly in the South, still reign through my veins. And I still um, keep those stories in mind because it's living history and how mm-hmm. I live my day-to-day life. Um, yeah. You did mention in healthcare about how we are working towards having a greater conversation with kind of racial injustice. And um, it, it, it's such a big deal in healthcare because a lot of times what people want to say is that we treat everyone equally. Right. Well, there's a difference between equal and mm-hmm. um, equity, right? right? And sure, you want to treat everyone equally, but that's not maybe what everyone Needs. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what that means for those who aren't familiar with that concept? Sure. And so a lot of what I think about is the, I think about a graphic and I think a graphic can speak a lot better than the way I can explain it. So there's a fence and everyone's trying to watch a baseball game and everyone's standing, trying to peep over the fence to be able to see this baseball game from their backyard. Well, equality would say you, everyone gets the same step height so that everyone can stand up on the same height of steps to be able to see over this fence. But what if everyone's not the same height? What if you have a five-year-old kid? What if you have an elderly person who's handicapped? What if you have a six foot five person? You know, what if you have different heights? Well, if everyone gets the same step stool, that's equality. It's all the same heights. It's the same level, but still not everyone's going to be able to see the baseball game over the fence because it's still not going to allow the people who are handicapped for the people who are shorter to actually take advantage of the steps tool that everyone was given. So equity actually looks at the variations in how people are made up or variations in how people live and adjust to make sure that everyone can see over the fence. But that doesn't mean that everyone gets the same thing. Yeah, so they're going to need a different boost. Different type order- of boost. In order to be getting to the same level as everyone else. And that's really what I believe in healthcare. So there are certain communities that have more issues with blood pressure or with diabetes or with asthma. And that could be because of how they've grown up, what environments they're exposed to, the toxins in their water and the air pollutants that they can be exposed to, a whole host of reasons, right? And you can't just say that everyone in in the United States just needs to do X, Y, and Z to make sure their health is improved. 
Well, what if you're in Detroit, Flint, Michigan, where the water wasn't great, mm-hmm. right? And now we're seeing the healthcare effects of what's been happening with water in Flint, Michigan for some time. That community is going to need very different water sanitation processes than people maybe in Lake Tahoe and their water sanitation. And so that all is to say that equity basically meets people where they're at to raise them to a certain standard of care that everyone can meet, but it's not the same level or starting point that everyone else starts at. And you don't use the same resources to get everyone to the same point. And that should still be okay. And so that conversation came about a lot after the murder of George Floyd, because we in healthcare talked about, do we treat people equally or do we treat people equitably? And what that means and how we should be able to actually use certain indicators to change our behaviors and change healthcare. And and we can do a second podcast on that. On that, right. A lot of information to go. But you asked me then, how would I then raise Camille in in the environment where she knows who she is and Mm -hmm. how how to deal with people who may approach her in a different way because of how she looks like. And my husband's really adamant about this and that we need to make sure to surround her by people that look like her and that encourage her and tell her that she is more than enough by whom she is. We've gotten a lot of, you know, books and educational materials already with things that look like her on them, you know, pictures and things like that so that she can see herself reflected in some of the books or, or videos that she watches. And granted, she's only three months, but we want to encourage that. We have a book all on hair, like curly yeah. hair, you know, right. so natural hairs. That. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and because I didn't particularly have that growing up and it's a newer thing. I don't know if you've seen that too, but you know, when we were younger, you get the Barbie and maybe you might have the African or African American Barbie, maybe, yeah. but they only had one. They were, it wasn't yeah. that diverse. Right. And the coloring books, they had like the crayons have even changed now. Yeah. I had like the black crayon and the brown crayon, but they have all these different shades of crayons yeah. now that yeah. they have or yeah. color pencils yeah. that you would have never thought of. Yeah. Band-aids for children has changed. It's not just the same mm-hmm. color band-aid. You can get skin flesh colored band-aids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how the United States and how the marketing industry has changed also is reflected in, I think, how people are thinking about the importance of encouraging young children who they are is when you encourage them, they're more positive and they contribute you to society at the end. And I, that's exactly way. what I want for my yeah. kiddo. Absolutely. Yeah. That reminds me of a funny time. It actually happened at at church in the Sunday school room. Some of the kids that I know were there and they were getting ready to color. And one little girl in particular, you know, beautiful brown, brown skin girl, she was looking at the the color choices for the the crayons. And she's like, "Um, where are the skin tones? Uh, I I don't, I don't see the skin tones. Where are the skin tone colors here? (laughs) And she was all of kindergarten, you know, maybe five or six years old. And she knew. Uh, And she knew. I was Racking up. Yep. I just, I loved it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had to go look for some, some skin tone colors. Exactly. You <laughs> have to do for, it for the babes. And yeah. I think that's exciting that our young people are growing up in a place and a time that is different from when we grew up where they can feel confident enough to ask where, where are the skin tone color crayons here? Right. Yeah. And they even recognize that it's beautiful and it's to be celebrated, you know, rather than any source of negativity or shame. So that's great. That's really great. Thank you for for all of that. So then as we're winding down, you know, I love ending with talking about, you know, self-care and what that means for you. And I know I'm sure it's been evolving, you know, through these, you know, stages and through these these months. So tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what what self-care kind of means for you and what that looks like. Self-care for me means preserving my mental health mostly. And I do that in, in a couple of ways, but something that's the most apparent to me that I didn't realize I was doing this before, but it was a part of me helping my mental health was to travel. Thus COVID-19 has been tough. (laughs) Um, But for me, traveling and exposing myself to different cultures, different types of food, you know, different locations really opens my mind and lets me de-stress from what's going on at home and, yeah. and, and experience something totally new. Yeah. Um, and so even in the pandemic, going, maybe treating myself and going with my husband and my kiddo to a really nice hotel and just staying there for the weekend allows yeah. me to unwind or going to a really cool restaurant helps me with my mental health too, believe it or not, because the the palate and how I taste things affects my serotonin and it makes me happy. And so that helps my mental health. 
Um, so the travel is a big deal for me. The other is getting massages. I, we just have to pamper yourself as a woman. Sometimes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I realized that early on that though, when I was in residency and med school, I couldn't afford it. I saw my dad do that a lot. So I take a lot after my dad, much the more than my mom. My dad loves to travel. My dad loves to pamper himself. He was <laughs> his nails were manicured and his feet, were, his pedicures were done, you know, cause he was That's in a very awesome. public facing role at his job. And, you know, he had to have nicely appearing buffed nails, even as a man. And so, and similarly, I'll go maybe get a massage once a month or try to do a spa once a month or something like that to make sure that I can kind of be my best self so that when I come back home and when I'm taking care of my family, they're seeing my best self. Doesn't always happen. I have to admit, we are not always our best selves and that is okay, but at least give you the opportunity to try to get to your best self by having (laughs) self-care things. That's really important. And finally, you mentioned mindfulness, but I've actually been reading a lot of books recently on yourself, your journey, changes in yourself, and how you just have to trust the process and trust in yourself. Yeah. One of those books that I would encourage your listeners to listen, uh, either listen to audio or read, right, right. called Bamboozled by Jesus. It's by oh, yes. Or she, she's hilarious. The book. She's hilarious. And it really refreshed me. I was so refreshed to yeah. hear her story, how God has yeah. taken her on this path where she didn't even know where she was going. Her Nigerian parents told her she was supposed to be a doctor. She was like, I'm trying to do comedy. Right. And was broke as a joke. Right. Um, but was able to, God saw her through. And uh, reading some of these inspirational stories and autobiographies right. as I've been doing has been really, really helpful in navigating how I want to have my career and what my outlook is. And maybe I'll write a book one day. I keep telling right. my husband he needs to write a book. Um, <laughs> it's very amazing too. And so um, maybe I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yvonne Orji is hilarious, and I we we went to, got to see her actually one of the last comedy shows, like you know, oh, in the theater wow. before the pandemic, before oh, everything wow. shut down, was a yeah a couple's one of our self care routines, a couple's night out. Yes, with a, a couple that you know, um, yeah, uh, Odiri and, and her husband. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, so to mm-hmm. see her live comedy, um, oh yeah, presentation. So <laughs> it was yes, it still stands out as a great memory because everything changed after that. So That's it. you know, and I think we all hold on to the, what we were doing right before COVID right, hit. Right. right. Exactly. And again, my family and I, my dad, Malika and I, Malika is my youngest sister. We mm-hmm. were skiing. We, again, we love to travel. My dad mm-hmm. will go skiing somewhere. So we were Oregon skiing. And that's the yeah. last I remember doing right before we had to shut down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's so, that's so special. And I thank you for, you know, reminding me that is a book that's on my list to get to. Or listen to it. Or she listen to it. it too. The, oh, so yes. Probably hearing her read it is yes. probably better. Even, even more fun. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And then we'll wrap up with renewal. So that's one of the themes that we've had here, you know, in this, in this year, because of all that has been going on and, and, you know, the opportunities for renewal that we have after, you know, the major shutdown of the pandemic. And so are there any final tips or um, last words that you want to share around renewal or anything else? Be patient. That it was, yeah. has been my year, my mantra of the year for 2020 and now 2021. Right, right. Be patient with yourself, be patient yeah. with your spouse, be patient with other people. And now for me, be patient with my new kiddo. Yes, that's <laughs> um, right. Patience really can test your nature. I, at, mm-hmm. at heart, am not the most patient person, but I'm <laughs> learning. Um, and um, it really has served me really far. And so I think be patience, number one, also be bold. Sometimes, and we saw this in the wake of a lot of the BLM movements that happened last year and that are continuing, and mm-hmm. also with COVID-19, we have to be bold for what we believe in, be bold in our decisions, and don't be afraid to let people know some of these things. Yeah. I recently uh, did a couple of interviews, for actually for the Permanente Medical Group on diversity in the healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe on TV again. We'll see where it, it right. ends up. Right. Um, but um, being bold and being okay with what you believe and being able to speak as such, because I think such a time as this for us to be out there with what we have to say, and it's okay and not to yeah. hold back. Yeah, absolutely. And then also be mindful. 
Um, three Bs. Yes. <laughs> people to be mindful because continuing with centering yourself and mindfulness and in whatever ways you practice mindfulness, whether that's prayer, meditation, taking time mm-hmm. to yourself at a spa day mm-hmm. um, or traveling, something to regroup is really important to make sure you again are your best self. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Be patient is huge right now, especially, you know, as families are like, we're spending more time together and we're having Mm -hmm. to adjust and shift our schedules sometimes very last minute. Mm -hmm. Um, We do absolutely have to be patient, not only with the people in our lives, but with ourselves. I think we set such high expectations of ourselves as moms to do everything like right Mm -hmm. now when Mm -hmm. it's not humanly possible to do everything right now. And so really just patiently, you know, taking care of things one step at a time, one day at a time, as we say around here is huge. And thank you. Yes. For the reminder to be bold. I think there's, I know for myself, you know, stepping out even into this podcast and launching it during the pandemic was one of, you know, the bold steps that, you know, I was excited to to finally get to given all that, you know, was taking place and continues. And it's been such the joy, you know, of, mm-hmm. of this season. And I'm, I'm so excited for the community that is building uh, around here and mindfulness it has continued to grow. And there are some great mindfulness-based stress reduction classes that you can take if you want to learn more about how to be more present in the moment, such that there's benefits to every aspect of your physical and mental health when you can be you know, more mindful. And even with children, I'll put a plug out for mindfulschools.com. They do some great self-paced, mindfulness-based classes and workshops, like six weeks at a time or eight weeks at a time that Mm -hmm. you can do to A, learn uh, more about that presence of of mind for yourself, but then also Mm -hmm. how to share it with younger people, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's designed for classroom teachers, but really a a benefit to anybody who has children or works with children or is around children. It has some great foundational skills and tools and practical practice that can get bring you a long way towards being more mindful in this year and in the years to come. So mm. thank you so much, Naima, for sharing with us. This has been delightful. And as you mentioned, there's way more that we can talk about. So we'll definitely yeah. have to do this again. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, thank as a, you. And maybe yeah, as you maybe get back to work and um, have that juggle, you can kind of give us an update once yeah. you've uh, settled into all of that with, uh, with the baby. And congratulations again. Can't wait to meet and snuggle her when we finally yeah. are able to cut, get together probably at Abundant Life when she's visit, visiting yeah. her grandparents. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. Definitely have to connect a little more. I think you have some great tips that I want to pick your brain about a bit. Absolutely. But I appreciate you having me on this platform. And I think this is such a great platform starting off for moms to be able to venture out and see what their mm. work is, but also see how they can kind of do a couple of things at the same time. And it, it's still okay. It's still, it's more than okay. It is yeah. more than okay. It's needed to make this world better. Yes, so, absolutely. That's awesome. Great. If anybody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Probably the best way is by email. And my email address is N as in my first name, Naima. D is in my middle name, Diane Bridges, which is my last name at gmail.com. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for that. And again, for being here. Have an amazing day. And we'll connect again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the moms we interview and find out how to work with Akua as a parenting coach. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.